Hey, Mama. I know getting meals on the table for your family can feel tough, especially finding weeknight-friendly meals that everyone in the family will love. There's a good chance it's why you're here, at least I hope so. Helping moms take the stress out of feeding their family is my biggest passion. It's why I share with you here, and it's why I created the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. If you've ever wished this podcast came with a weekly done-for-you dinner plan with a shopping list and meal prep tips, or maybe a recipe library with over 200 family-friendly recipes, cooking tips, how-tos, and hacks, well, it does, and it's all in the Healthy Mama Cooking Club over on Patreon. Starting at just $3 a month for access to our 200-plus recipe vault with printable PDF recipes, or $5 a month for weekly done-for-you dinner plans, plus the recipe vault and bonus podcasts every month, the Healthy Mama Cooking Club is the dinnertime solution you're looking for. Head to patreon.com slash healthymamachris or click the link in the show notes to try it out for a week free and join over 130 other busy mamas making weeknight meals work with the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. I can't wait to see you in there. All right, let's get on with the episode. The key is to find harmony. Um, I celebrate the diversity of flavors within the Asian cuisine while integrating Weston A. Price principles strategically. And it's about adapting without compromising the en- essence of either tradition. Does cooking feel like a struggle more often than you want to admit? Do school lunches get boring after the third week and even cereal for breakfast sometimes feels like too much effort? Let alone feeding yourself and your family meals with vegetables they'll actually eat? If you're a busy mama like me, you can probably relate. I'm Chris Dovniak and welcome to My Healthy Mama Kitchen. I'm a trained chef, culinary nutritionist, and mama of two, and I'm here to guide you in making healthy eating easy and accessible by simplifying your meal plan, demystifying meal prep, taking the stress out of weeknight dinners, and helping you learn to cook your family delicious, nutrient-dense meals along the way without spending hours in the kitchen or thousands of dollars a month at Whole Foods. In this podcast, I'm here to share my best tips, tools, and hacks for your real-life Healthy Mama kitchen with a side of humor and sometimes a little bit of spice. So grab your favorite apron and let's get cooking. Just a couple weeks ago, my husband was telling me how much he wants me to cook more Asian recipes. For those of you who don't know, my husband's half Japanese, and so he grew up with his family members cooking some of the most delicious Japanese recipes, but he doesn't discriminate. He loves all types of Asian food, as do I. But as many of you also know, I am classically trained in French cuisine. I've learned a lot about cooking over the years, but I still get a little bit intimidated by Asian cooking. As much as I love eating it and as much as I love the Asian flavors, I am certainly not an expert despite wanting to learn more, which is why I am so excited to share with you today's guest. Sophia is so much more qualified than I am to share tips on Asian cooking. She is passionate about bringing traditional foods to modern Asian cuisine. Sophia Nguyen A is a first-generation Vietnamese-American who left a successful career in growth marketing in Silicon Valley to start a five-acre permaculture farm in the Appalachian region of eastern Tennessee. During her time in the tech industry, Eng led successful growth marketing campaigns for startups and Fortune 500 companies like Workday, Envision, and Smartsheet, which led to opportunities to develop a certificate training program with CXL Institute and being a founder of the tech organization Women in Growth. 
a sought-after speaker she's presented at Google HQ, Growth Hackers, and the global Sawstock Tech Conferences. Now she draws her experiences speaking on stage and her knowledge of food, farming, and health to present at homesteading conferences. Eng is also a Weston A. Price chapter leader and the founder of the website Sprinkle with Soil. With her husband Tim, she raises grass-fed dairy cows, beef cattle, laying hens, broilers, ducks, sheep, goats, turkeys, and grows a variety of produce for her multi-generational family and local community. She's also the author of The Nourishing Asian Kitchen, and I am so excited to have her on to share all of her best tips and favorite Asian family recipes. I had so much fun talking with Sophia. You'll hear me talk about my own experience with Asian food and Asian cooking, and she really inspires me and encourages me throughout the episode that I can make these delicious recipes in her cookbook. I can make them for my husband. I can make them for my kids. And that Asian cooking, especially nourishing Asian cooking with traditional foods, really isn't that intimidating. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sophia. Welcome to the Healthy Mama Kitchen podcast, Sophia. I am so looking forward to chatting with you today. Like I have, we were just chatting before. Obviously, any of my listeners know I love to talk, um, but I want to jump right in. Can you just start by sharing your cooking story with my listeners? How did you start cooking and what does cooking look like for you today? Kristen, thanks for having me on your podcast. So, I mean, I started cooking with my mom in the kitchen when I was very, very young. My family, uh, they're uh, immigrants from Vietnam and we didn't have much growing up. So I grew up eating nose to tail and eating traditionally without really being able to share that with anybody at school <laughs> or much in college or even at the workplace, you know, to be able to use all of the whole chicken, for example. And so it, you know, over the last 12 years since my oldest daughter was born, that's when I really woke up to the food industry and eating real food. And, and um, even though we had cooked most of our food, Asian cuisine homemade, it was never, it was never from scratch. And so, you know, we still were very dependent on Asian condiments and sauces from the grocery store until when I had my daughter and I started looking into organic and making our own applesauce. And, you know, in these cookbooks, they would say, try to source organic. And I thought, well, so at what age or how old does she need to get until she, her body can process these chemicals that are coming from conventionally raised you know, apples or pears that I was trying to make, or are we doing it wrong? And could we make some adjustments? And so it's been a 12 year long journey. And clearly now we have our own farm and we raise most of our food. <laughs> so it's been a process. Um, and, and, you know, it's just been cooking traditionally my mom and i have spent a lot of time over the years together to replace all of the ingredients that we used to buy as condiments and marinades and things like that at the grocery store so now we're making them from scratch and she hit 75 years old last year and my oldest is now 12 and i realized you know by the time she really cares about food you know in another 10 years mom will be 85 87 and, you know, her memory is already starting to go. Her health is starting to decline. And so I, here I am standing in the gap, realizing that it is kind of my job and my role to capture these recipes that my mom and I have worked on together for the kids. And it was supposed to be just as simple as that, you know, getting something printed together at FedEx and spiral bounded, handed off to them this Christmas for 
for the holidays, but it has turned into a cookbook and I'm really excited to share that. Um, and cooking today is, you know, as a busy working mom, um, homeschooling, as well as homesteading, we have our own farm. All of my recipes have always been, and before this, I was at a startup, so I was working 80 hours a week. So as I was developing these recipes with mom, I just made sure that they were very easy and uh, economical and uh, something that I could whip up real quick, but the most nourishing. So basically optimizing for nutrient density, for our health. Um, and that was my career back in tech is optimization. So naturally I took it home with me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love all of that. And I know that the moms listening can 100% relate to, we want it to be budget friendly, we want it to be quick, but we want it to be super nourishing and most importantly, really delicious too. So I love that. <laughs> so I am so looking forward to talking to you about Asian cooking specifically, because personally, I grew up in a very white suburban town. We ate a lot of standard American food growing up, as I know a lot of my listeners too. Um, I had the occasional influence. My great-grandmother immigrated here from Syria. So when she was alive, we got some really awesome traditional Middle Eastern foods, but it was a very small part of my upbringing. For the most part, it was like mac and cheese and chicken nuggets and all of that. Um, so most of the Asian food that I had growing up, and I'm going to use like Asian in quotations, I know that Asia is the largest continent and it spans like, it's like 40 plus countries, right? So we're, we're generalizing here, but the only like Asian food that I had growing up was your American Chinese food for the most part until I was in like high school age. And I don't even know how, but my friends and I discovered this restaurant in like a town over from me. And it was called Seven Moons, and it had seven different types of Asian cuisine. And it was fairly traditional for, you know, I grew up in the Northeast. So whereas, like, my sister-in-law lives in Vancouver now, and there's a huge Asian influence in Vancouver, I grew up in Rhode Island. There is not a huge Asian community <laughs> there. But it was as traditional as I think I, well, I had ever had. And so I started falling in love with sushi from Japan and pad thai from Thailand and neem chow from Cambodia and all of these dishes that I didn't have growing up. Um, and then flash forward, like, I don't know, five, seven years later, and I met my husband who is half Japanese. And so he had a completely different upbringing than I did when it came to Asian food. And we ended up moving to Toronto for several years, which a lot of my listeners know. That's where I went to culinary school, French culinary school. So, I mean, we had a couple, you know, we had a couple Asian dishes that we did in culinary school, but my my chefs, one of my chefs was from the Ukraine and the other chefs were just Canadian chefs. So they didn't have that influence either. But living in the city, I got to experience really good Vietnamese food. I tried pho for the first time. I got to, there was a whole Korea town, which had like the most amazing. I never had bibimbap before. So I kind of started to fall. And then, of course, my husband's grandma lived in Toronto as well. So we got to experience her cooking, too. So I've kind I've really fallen in love with all of these different types of Asian cuisine over the years. Um, and it is some of my absolute favorite food to eat. But I'm still a, a, like a fish out of water when it comes to cooking it because it's just not my forte. And I think for a lot of my listeners who are like me, too, and didn't grow up with that, and maybe want to cook more of that food, I am so grateful for chefs and cookbook authors like you who kind of are bringing that Asian cuisine to like a more accessible place. Like going through your cookbook, 
it it feels like things that I can do. It feels really doable, which I really love. So I'm going to stop talking and sharing my own story. What inspired you to actually, I guess you kind of started talking about this a little bit. It was supposed to be like a spiral bound book that you just made for your family. What turned this into the Nourishing Asian, Asian Kitchen? <laughs> It was mainly because I was, I've been trying to find this book myself for the last 12 years. And, you know, if, if you've heard of Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon Morell, I discovered my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> it is the Bible of nutrition, right? And so that was 12 years ago. And I thought, well, this is all great. I mean, when I flip through a cookbook, though, I do love, I believe, personally, that digestion begins with the eyes. We have to, that's when we start, you know, um, imagining it and um, envisioning how it's going to taste. And so that is part of my background. I used to be a wedding photographer as well. And so all of that has, has been a, a, a part of, you know, if I'm going to write this book for the world, it has to be beautiful. Um, but, but not just that, I need it to have the meat of all of the reasons why I believe that we should be eating pasture raised meats or grass fed, grass finished, why we should be fermenting our food, soaking our grains, um, you know, and really the, the only book out there is really nourishing traditions. There's a couple more, but it was missing the Asian context of it. And mm, that's because yeah. it's based off of Dr. Weston A. Price's studies in 1930s. And back then, you know, China and Japan uh, they were not just, they didn't have just all these indigenous cultures, like other cultures were coming in, such as the French colonization. And a lot of the recipes in the book, I mean, one of the beautiful things about colonization is the the ability to, to bring that out in our food, the, the beauty and the, the flavors in our food. So there's a combination of, you know, my background is in Vietnamese and primarily I wanted to write down mom's recipes. So all of the traditional Vietnamese recipes that are, have been turned into the nourishing traditions, um, wise traditions, um, principles, but also there's the Chinese recipes that, you know, I, I, in the cookbook, I talk about all of our, our family stories because I wrote for the girls. I wrote for my future grandchildren, <laughs> mm. you know, for them to remember one day and uh, where they came from and also tried to capture mom's story. So, uh, so my husband's Chinese, uh, Taiwanese, he, so we have some recipes there, but also we grew up uh, in the Bay area, born and raised in the Bay area. So there's an eclectic blend of all sorts of different types of Asian cuisine from Thai to Japanese, Korean, uh, Japanese. And so, you know, every time, and I would say my husband and I are big foodies. We grew up in the Bay area. We're kind of spoiled with all this delicious food, not all nourishing though, and not all real food. So whenever we would go on a date night, we would try out these restaurants love them, take mom the following week and have her taste it, come home. And I would say, okay, mom, let's recreate it with the limited amount of ingredients that are clean that, you know, and so how do we extract the flavors? How do we, how do we still mimic the flavors? And she has a very discerning palate. Um, mm -hmm. and, and mom actually went to culinary school before she got married in our Vietnamese. Oh, cool. Yeah. In our Vietnamese culture, before you got married, you had to go to culinary school. So oh my gosh. So you could cook for your family. It's so cool. <laughs> so she learned a little bit more of that French influence from there. And so mom is just very discerning with her tongue, with the way that, you know, I was chopping my scallions. There's different ways. I'm sure, you know, are very familiar with it. 
but I know that you can cut it, a, a, you know, a hundred different ways for many different dishes and you have to know how to do it. So that's why the cookbook was a reference for the kids and for myself too, but for the children to know, you know, you don't just chop all of your scallion on some fish dishes, you know, it's, it's a decorative way. And so we wanted to, I still wanted to capture that, but over the last 12 years, I've thrifted the dishware that you see in the cookbook. Mm. It's been a dream of mine to write this cookbook with mom for the kids. And, you know, I'm glad I did it when I did. We have now this legacy that we can pass on to the children. And I see, I feel like it's the right timing where at least within the homesteading and the farming community, eating nose to tail and eating chicken feet and chicken liver and chicken hearts <laughs> has now become a cool thing where I couldn't talk about it in my past before, <laughs> but now everybody wants to hear about how to prepare it and how to cook it. And how do you make it taste good? Cause I want my family to eat it. This is most nutrient dense. So I just, I just love it. I think the timing is right. Oh, yes. Yes to all of that. I love that your mom is so involved in this and that she has that discerning palate and you brought her to these restaurants you went to and then you were starting to recreate these recipes. I think it is such a gift to be able to have that sort of influence in your life with those incredible traditional recipes and be able to pass that on to the world to those of us who don't have that sort of influence as well. And I think there's going to be countless families that you help. Um, and in terms of the you know traditional cooking, like the Weston A. Price style cooking, I probably discovered the kind of real food movement over a decade ago. Actually, probably similar timing. My daughter, my oldest daughter is 10 now. Um, so I was going through some digestive issues myself and I kind of discovered the work of Weston A. Price and real food. And because like I said, I grew up on those processed foods and I had actually went to school for nutrition before I went to school for, um, before I went to culinary school, but it was like traditional U.S. When I say traditional, I mean, it was like USDA university level nutrition. It was, they were not uh, making bone broth and maybe now, but you know, back 15 years ago when I was in college, they weren't doing that. And so I kind of started discovering that myself. And I did find that there is only so much information and only so many recipes out there with that in mind. So I love that you're kind of bringing those those two things together. And it's so funny that you're mentioning chicken feet because, because and I saw you have a um, you have a recipe, you have a couple recipes in your book. I think you have a broth recipe and you talk about using using chicken feet. It is the best for gelatin and and then you have a recipe for them cooked. Now I've never I've never had them cooked, but I have used them in broth before and I mentioned to my husband we actually have a butcher box delivery like coming on the way right now. We we source we source good meat, but we don't have a good resource for like local bones if I'm not just using chicken bones that I you know, I, I'll cook a chicken and then I'll use those bones to make broth at home. And I was like, oh, man, this is like literally last week. I was like, I need to find a local source for chicken feet. He's like, oh, there's going to be dinosaur feet in our fridge again and our freezer again. <laughs> <laughs> During this time when I was really on this gut healing journey, I was and there were some really great farms around Toronto. This is when we lived in Toronto. And so I it was easy to find and I would put them in the freezer. And he's like, every time I would open the freezer, it's like a jump scare. There's like dinosaur feet in our freezer, but they made the best broth. And I think that there are so many more people who are like, OK, I really want to eat more real food. I want to learn these traditional techniques. I want to maybe experiment with chicken feet in my broth. But like, where do I where do I even start? So 
<laughs> exactly. And that's exactly why I took the picture for that chicken broth, chicken feet broth, the way that I did. Like, how do you make all of these traditional, quote unquote, scary dinosaur looking like food, but more modern and classy? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make it where it's like, oh, it's actually beautiful with a yes. chicken carcass. It took a <laughs> lot of shots to get there. <laughs> but, you know, how do we normalize this conversation and not just normalize yes. it, encourage it? Because it, once you understand like the nutritional benefits of it and realize that it is increasing your collagen and your gelatin for your body and how nourishing that is, yeah, put it into any broth. And then afterwards, I turn it into a quick stir fry. So it's like a, dim sum dish that it it really is like nibbling on chicken wings, you know, you mm. just, and so again, like that photo was just to these, these photos around chicken feed, chicken liver. I have a whole, literally, I have a, a whole awful section, mm -hmm. which is, you know, all of the things like chicken liver, heart, beef liver, you know, um, beef tongue. Um, and, and how do you make it so that it is captivating. And I wanted to separate it into a separate chapter because that was one other thing that I was talking with my publisher and they were encouraging me to put it away, you know, chicken liver, chicken feet should go into the poultry section. And, and I said, no, this is kind of redemptive of my childhood, but we need to have offals are the most nutrient dense part of the animal more so than mm -hmm. muscle meat. And so we need to have a conversation about it. And I know it's scary. People have their feelings about it, but, and, and their reservations about it, but, but how do I make it so that we can at least have a beginning step to talk about it? And I think, again, it starts with beautiful photos. I can tell mm -hmm. you the story. I can tell you why it's so good for you. And maybe we can get you to a point where you can buy that because whole foods now sells Mary's organic chicken feet, chicken. Yeah. liver, So it is accessible now to major cities and it, you know, some people would buy them or, you know, the leftover farms would sell them for dog food. Right. And that was why as a child, you know, I couldn't really talk about this because it was all quote unquote, you know, dog food, but it's not, I mean, when it, when you realize how much it is beneficial for you for gut healing, you want to eat that first, you know, you can throw out the rest of the bones for the dogs, but you know, and, and you can still feed them to the dogs, but why not feed them to nourish your body and your family's body? Because I believe that food is medicine. And I yes. believe that we should be taking food first before we do supplements before we do, you know, any other avenue, because it's there for us. Yes. Yeah. No, I wholeheartedly agree. And I do think it can be scary. And I remember the first time I had ever had liver was in culinary school, just making a simple French pate. And I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And from there, I've kind of explored more. Some things I've loved, some things I haven't. Um, you know, my kids have eaten liver worse since they were really little. And now that they're a little bit older and they have more opinions, they're not as interested in it, but I'm always looking for ways to serve my family more of those nutrient-dense foods as well. Um, and even though I have some of that culinary experience, like I said, it's in a different it's in it's in a different way than the way that you're sharing. And so I love having options. It's not just your French liver pate, it's putting the chicken feet in the broth. It is you know, my actually my 10 year old is currently obsessed with uh, lingua tacos. So we have this really great little I joke. It's the, we joke that it's a laundromat taco place. This is very not much not Asian food, um, <laughs> but 
we've got we live in Florida now and we've got some pretty decent Mexican food. We live on the Gulf of Mexico. And so we have this really great little hole in the wall taco spot that we found and it's next to a laundromat. So we call it laundromat tacos. And her favorite on their menu is their lingua tacos, which is beef tongue. And she asked me what it was. And I was like, oh, it's beef tongue. She's like, I want to try it. She's my very adventurous eater. Octopus is one of her favorite foods. She loves raw oysters. Like she <laughs> she ordered them at a, at a dinner. We went to a dinner with friends a couple weeks ago and she ordered just a plate. of. She's like, can I just get a plate of raw oysters? And I'm like, I mean, it's expensive, but I also don't want to say no to my kid asking for raw oysters. I'm like, sure. And she's with a bunch of friends and her friends are like, okay. <laughs> but she loves that. She loves beef tongue. And I think as a mom, when we can expose our kids to these foods that we might not have grown up with, you grew up with them. I didn't. <laughs> and so, you know, everyone listening is going to be, is going to have a different experience when we can kind of expose them to that in a way that's really delicious. And especially when they're young, they're going to be more open to it too, which I think is really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, I mean, I grew up this way, so it's, it's natural, but my husband didn't. And so he's mm -hmm. second generation, um, Asian American. Right. And so he grew up on rice aroni. He grew up on lean cuisine and a lot of, I, I talked about it in the book, but a lot of our early marriage disagreements were around food. And so it's still, you know, it's only now gotten to a point that once he realized when we switched over to grass fed grass finish, and he wasn't scratching his body anymore, that's what opened up his eyes. And so I said, okay, so I guess we're going to, we're going to make some changes and it wasn't easy. And, you know, if you didn't grow up with it, you have these reservations, especially around offals um, that make it a little bit more challenging, but there are ways that we could sneak it in. Like I have a Vietnamese pate in there that mm -hmm. is so good. It is, it is Vietnamese French. I'd love for you to try it. Uh, but yes, there is a lot of French influence in Vietnamese cuisine. I always forget that, but you've got yes. like your banh mi sandwich with a baguette and that's some French influence. And yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I talk about it in the book too, to honor that. Um, but yeah, the banh mi, the, the, the pate is one of, I mean, that's the only reason I eat the bun meat for the pate or I order yes. <laughs> double pate and then I always get disappointed when we're out. So I'm like, okay, we'll just have to make it ourselves and I can slather it on <laughs> and have our own raw butter that we make. So that plus the pate plus a sourdough bread baguette. I mean, that's oh sometimes gosh. just dinner. <laughs> so good. <laughs> pickles. <laughs> yes. No, that sounds amazing. I would eat that for dinner tonight. Um, I I made my own version of a as as traditional as I could get it, bun me sandwich this summer for some friends. Um, we were staying, my husband and I were staying with them this summer and they had never had it before. And they were like, this is amazing. And I'm like, it's actually really simple. It's just using like that really, really good quality meat. And I did not, I did not use a pate because I did not have one for them, but I used, um, I used a, a spread instead. Um, but, and it's, it's just about really good quality ingredients makes such a big difference. Absolutely. And I think we joke around all the time. We have ruined ourselves as foodies in the Bay Area. Now that we have our <laughs> own farm, we're raising our own meat, we're raising our own vegetables, we're cooking all of our own food, literally freshly harvested that day. It has really ruined us for eating out, at, even at like <laughs> half of fine dining restaurants. And we don't even need to do much. I mean, aside from salt and pepper, some garlic, maybe some rosemary, you know, all the things that are very basic that 
it makes a world of a difference when we actually eat our food now, because it all starts from what you said, like sourcing our ingredients. How was it raised? And we also take the extra step and we really focus on soil health and building up our mm. soil health. So a lot of our ferments, we ferment in the house, you know, from kimchi, sauerkraut, all sorts of different Asian, I guess you can call them krauts, but um, pickled and fermented veggies. So we also ferment for the garden too. When we put that right back into the soil, we build up mm. the soil. Any of our milk jars, for example, we rinse out and we'll pour it right back in the soil and that feeds the microbes. And then again, we're oh, growing cool. grass, we're growing our veggies and that helps with the nutrient density. Even though you're, you may be buying food from the grocery stores, right? It had been harvested a month before, sent out to a distribution center to package it up and then sent again out to the, the grocery stores versus, you know, if you can buy from a small farmer or if you can start your little small garden, you know, which we're talking about, you know, fresh nutrient dense food that you can put your eyes on it. And you know, the closer you get to your food, to where you live, that really helps with your gut health. I'm sure, you know, and the audience mm -hmm. knows. <laughs> I mean, it helps with your health. And when it comes to a culinary, a cul the culinary side of things as well, I think until you really experience like, I mean, we still we shop at the grocery store. We live in the Tampa Bay area. So we have a really incredible farmer's market about half an hour away that we try to go to as much as we can. Um, we don't have a lot of little farms around us, just where we are. So I do shop at the grocery store a lot. And unfortunately, we don't have a garden now. I'm working on some herbs, but we're we're renting. It is my dream to have a garden and maybe maybe just some chickens, something. <laughs> our neighbors have chickens, so I know I can have chickens. I'm just not sure how much our property manager would appreciate us having chickens right now. Um, but I think until you experience the difference between like, just the flavor of a locally grown fresh carrot from the farmer's market versus what you buy at the grocery store, it doesn't really make sense. Obviously, we know it it's higher in nutrients, which is great. But when you taste it, you're like, oh, this is a carrot, right? It is it, on the culinary side, absolutely. I mean, down to like a tomato. Someone before told me like, oh, until you've tasted a homegrown tomato, you don't know. And it's so true. Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, they, 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 yeah. So there's that. And then the cilantro. And we use a lot of cilantro in our broth. Mm -hmm. My mom would say, and I wrote it in the cookbook too. She would say, don't even bother making pho if you don't have cilantro and, and green onions. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it started was I started in a small little box outside of the window for my mom. And it was just how to succession plant cilantro and scallion. So whenever she would cook, she would have that because she said, don't even bother making fun unless you have those two herbs. But it all started as a little small little herb garden. And then as I saw that, I, I started, oh, wow, it tastes amazing. I mean, it, yeah. it just changes the flavor profile from a simple herb that mm -hmm. you know you usually buy from the grocery store to what you could easily just harvest. I mean, it's just amazing to the point yeah. like now addicted and yeah, be careful with those chickens. They in the in the farming world they say chickens are the gateway animals, and if you can see <laughs> growing those chickens, you'll start moving on to other animals. But same thing with the eggs that the chickens produce. If you buy mm -hmm. farm fresh eggs or have access to farm fresh eggs from your neighbor and they're actually free ranging and eating the bugs and the grubs in the ground and all the seeds and the grass versus what you're seeing in the grocery store conventionally raised, like you can see the difference in the yolk color. 
So like not even talking about nutrient density, but also the flavor as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just, I mean, yeah, we're hooked. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, I can imagine I would be too. My husband travels too much right now for us to have animals, but oh, we would, we would love that in the future at a garden, a garden for sure. Yeah. So talking about traditional cooking and traditional foods and on the Asian cooking side of things, where does kind of the, the Asian cooking that you see or the Asian ingredients, I guess, that that you see in the grocery store, how does that differ from the traditional cooking that you do? Like where are the, I guess, what are the big, biggest differences and what are maybe the first swaps that you sort of made in your kitchen? Yeah. So the, there's very few that I could buy from the Asian grocery stores, the Asian markets, very few ingredients that I can buy. For example, you'll see a wall of soy sauce and a wall of fish sauce at the Asian grocery store. In fact, I had um, a friend text me a picture. She just got the book and uh, uh, she took a picture of every of the aisle that she was at. And she's like, which fish sauce do I buy? Like, read the book. <laughs> you know? um, but there's very few that are considered clean, traditionally fermented sauces, for example, like mm-hmm. um, Red Boat is the only brand that I will trust for fish sauce. And it's the one that I have in my fridge. So I'm very happy you said that. <laughs> Yes. I mean, and it's interesting because there are other ones in other cookbooks and in other Asian cookbooks and other Asian people communities, because it's not just the Vietnamese, but the Thai Filipino cultures also use fish sauce. But the ones that they sell in the Asian grocery market, they'll sneak in things like high fructose corn syrup in there Mm. uh, and they'll have sugars. It isn't traditionally fermented. So I'm coming from a place of, I want things that I'll be able to make. I even have a recipe to make your own fish sauce traditionally Mm. fermented, but I want to be able to go back a hundred years, maybe even 200. And if things didn't exist in the grocery store, you know, could they, could they make this? So one of the other things is MSG, Uh, you know, it's chemically processed. I'm not a fan of it. It's an excitotoxin. It, It damages a lot of your health and gut and your brain. And so I know it's a controversial issue, but it's just something that, again, I go back to, if it wasn't traditionally fermented, if it wasn't traditionally made back then, then I will tend to stay away from it. Um, And so how do we cook in a way where I can still bring up the umami flavors? Because MSG was created to be a flavor enhancer. Mm-hmm. It's great for restaurants because it it doesn't cut into their profit. They can actually profit more if they use these powders or if they use MSG, and uh, and it excites your body into thinking, well, this is this is really good, and it's it's not unfortunately, and it causes a lot of issues. Like my mom had atrial fibrillation. Every time we would go out to eat, her heart would just pump, and that's not good. She has high blood pressure. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, and so that was one of the things that we saw an improvement in once we changed out and, and didn't eat out anymore. And we started cooking things traditionally, but now the trick is how do you cook traditionally so that you can still bring out those umami flavors without having to use MSG. And mom had worked at a restaurant before when she first came to America, she was working at a restaurant and she would say, you know, one cup of salt, one cup of sugar, and one cup of MSG, like that's the formula. And I was like, you know, and now she knows, okay, if there's a mystery, she can't eat, she can't eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can argue that it's a, 
an allergic reaction, but if you really look into it, it is chemically processed and it is not naturally occurring. Maybe mm -hmm. glutamate and certain forms of it, but MSG itself is not. And so because of that, I just steer, stay away from it. I just like to focus on what was, you know, what, what did our ancestors eat mm -hmm. and how did they cook and how could they have cooked? You know, there weren't any cookbooks back a hundred years ago, but we can take a few things, at least in Asia that, you know, 200 years ago, but at least we can take some of the things that we know from Dr. Weston A. Price and how he studied across the world and saw how indigenous traditions, how they ate, how they prepared their food, how they raised their food to, okay, so how can we do that today? And yeah, there are some things that we do rely on modern technology, like the refrigerator. I love the refrigerator mm -hmm. so for it, you know? And so we do try to find a blend of the mix of tradition and modern, but I just feel like swinging too much in one way with the modern, with technology and my background and working in technology as well. I just don't want it in my food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And because the thing about Asian cuisine too, is that, and I think the reason I fell in love with it way before I ever even considered going into the culinary field is that there are, there's such a beautiful balance of flavors that you don't always find in other cuisines. So you find balanced flavors in French cuisine and Italian cuisine, but I think a lot of times the juxtaposition of the sweet and the sour and that umami flavor that you just don't get in a lot of other cuisines, like Thai food is one of, it's for some reason ended up being one of my mo one of the Asian cuisines I'm most comfortable cooking just because I think I experimented with it a lot. Um, and I think I had some clients back in my private chef days that wanted Thai food. And so I was like, well, I better learn how to cook it. <laughs> and so I discovered things like fish sauce. And my husband has instructed me on good quality soy sauce and things like that. There's so many different types, too. And so we had a whole discussion about that the other day, um, like shoyu versus tamari versus he's Japanese. So we're, you know, talking about different different soy sauces and different soy sauce brands. And there are these ingredients that we have available at the grocery store that we can add to our foods. But I love that it's, you know, looking at what is the best quality we can find paired with what can we make from home, all with the basis of what what is it that people a couple hundred years ago were using or could make. I love that as kind of your framework. Can yeah. I make this at home? Or is there a good, not a good alternative, but is there a good option? We're going to take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsors. It's the new year and we're all thinking about new routines and habits, right? I've shared this before and I'll share it again. The hardest habit for me is drinking enough water. So I'm always looking for ways to make drinking more water easier so I don't even have to think about it. It's why I got a giant 40-ounce water cup, and it's why I'm obsessed with my AquaTrue countertop water filter. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAs in your water supply. PFAs are found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water, and I'm grateful that AquaTrue is certified to remove these contaminants. And the filters are affordable and long-lasting, which is awesome. No changing filters every two to three months. AquaTrue filters last from six months to two years. It's even portable, making it perfect for renters like us or for college dorms. So if you have kids going off to college in the fall, this would be a good thing to start thinking about. 
Not to mention, the water actually tastes so good, I find myself actually wanting to sip from my giant water cup. I can truly taste the difference compared with previous water filters and definitely from tap water. And it makes me feel good knowing that my family is drinking clean water free of contaminants. We always fill up my kids' water bottles before they go to school or before my daughter goes to sailing with our AquaTrue filtered water. And because I know if you're like me, you want to make sure you're making the right purchases for your family, AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and it even makes a great gift. Today, my listeners receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code HEALTHYMAMA at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use code Healthy mama. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Absolutely. It's all about finding the key is to find harmony. Um, I celebrate the diversity of flavors within the Asian cuisine while integrating Weston A. Price principles strategically. And it's about adapting without compromising the en- essence of either tradition. You know? yes. So how do we how do we do that? And and again, this was a book that I was hoping to find. I did not set out to write a cookbook. If this cookbook <laughs> existed, I would have bought them and I would have bought them for my friends and be done with it. You know, but but I've just been waiting and waiting. And and there are people within like the wise traditions community that again, you know, I just feel it was missing the flavor, the umami flavors. Mm -hmm. You're also seeing kimchi now sold at these American grocery stores, right? At Trader Joe's. (laughs) At Trader Joe's, they're at Whole Foods, they're at natural grocery stores. And now you're seeing miso come into the into the playing field, into the grocery store. So it's becoming more accessible, but then, and then chicken feet, right? But then what do you do with it? People don't yes. know what to do with it. <laughs> and you can be more, a little bit adventurous, but then there are some that may require a little bit more handholding. And so if I can take that opportunity to, yeah, I'll hold you through it, but also talk to you about nutrition and talk to you about why it's important to, you know, support and, and eat traditionally too. I think that that is the goal. I mean, if I didn't set out to write a cookbook for the world, then I wouldn't have taken that approach. But because it was going to go through a publisher like Chelsea Green, it was I wanted to make it educational more than mm-hmm. more than what I probably would have if I would just wrote it for the children. Yeah, no, I love how educational it is, too. And I love and I wrote this in the notes that I sent to you, too. I love so many of the cooking tips that you pepper throughout your book. So you have that education on traditional foods and why you're choosing these ingredients. You have an incredible education on Asian cooking within the book, as well as these incredible, beautiful, like beautifully photographed recipes. And then you also have these tips. And so one of the things that you mentioned was like about tenderizing lemongrass and basil. And so lemongrass is one of those ingredients that I love so much. And I've used it when I worked in restaurants. I've used it and I used it in culinary school and occasionally when I was a personal chef because it was so easy to find in Toronto and not so easy to find when I lived in Rhode Island or down here. I did actually recently find it at Whole Foods. So I'm very 
happy that Whole Foods has it at least. And I'm glad that these ingredients are becoming more mainstream. So lemongrass is one of those ingredients that I'm happy that you can find more often now, at least, you know, I guess it depends on where our listeners live. Um, And I knew to tenderize lemongrass just from I don't even know where it was. It was it was either it was either in a restaurant or in culinary school. But I had no idea that that's something that you should do with ginger as well. And I think sometimes those little things and whether it's the different condiments or sauces that you are experimenting, adding to your food, or it's those little cooking tips that you give along the way. I think it can it can make such a big difference in those little things can make a really big difference in our cooking. So I love that you kind of combine that education of traditional foods, Asian cuisine, and then also some of those little Asian cooking techniques as well. Yeah. I think preparation is a huge part of this journey and realizing that in order to extract all the flavors from lemongrass, it's not just, you know, quickly just finding the lemongrass stock and putting it in there. I mean, again, I cooked with my mom, so she was always correcting me. It's hands-on training throughout the last decade of how to do this, including, you know, like ginger. I don't know if that's something when I look at YouTube videos, I don't know if people do that. Some people just throw in the whole ginger, right? And and that's fine. But for, for me and the way that mom and I cooked, it's it's how do we get the flavors and the juices out? You do help the ginger out. Yes. <laughs> and so I don't know, it just seems second nature. And as I was writing it, I said, well, it may not be second nature for the for the kids. Yeah, this is this is who I was writing it for. So I like, Mm -hmm. you know, one day if mom's not around or I'm not around, they'll have this to pass on. And and these are helpful tips to help extract the flavor. These are the I don't know if they're you know, they they are our family's traditional methods. And Mm -hmm. this is how we get the flavors that we do. Yeah. And I think that's how cuisines have been passed on over thousands of years. Right. It's by that hands on cooking. So who cares if it's not technical or whatever it is, how you extract more flavor from something. I think that's such an important tip. And I love that. So do you have any other maybe essential techniques or things, maybe techniques that people might not, or that you want to pass on to your kids that they might not know that are maybe more unique to Asian cooking? Yes. One of the videos that I have um, online is a how to piece out your chicken and it's a Japanese method but it's essentially how to piece out your chicken in very simple steps, but that you don't dull your blade. And when you piece them out, you're left with a clean carcass that you can then repurpose that carcass and put it back and make a stock from it or Mm. broth from it. Um, Because I think traditionally, when you look at the way that a lot of the, um, you know, YouTubes that I've seen, you're having to cut through bones or you're having to just cut through the joints. And it's just, um, there's a lot more little fine pieces of bones that you're going to have to then extract and then put it back into the, so it's actually very messy. And so, you know, if there's a way that I can show the, like it was, you know, the girls, this is how we do it. And it's, it again, is second nature, but over time you realize that this is the most economical way to eat when you buy a whole chicken. And I think people are starting to realize that potentially, you know, it could be six, $7 for a pasture raised um, chicken, a pound, sorry, $7 a pound at most, right? That's the going rate around here. And that's how much we sell for, or you can um, buy $15 a pound for drumsticks, 
right? So is there a way that you can get smarter on how to piece out this whole chicken? Say you buy this chicken for $25 and this is the way I grew up. Piece it out so that you can use the thighs and the dark meat for one separate dish or the chicken breast for another dish, make us broth out of it. Um, and then use the organs, the offals. And that's how I grew up with mom taking a whole broiler chicken and making four dishes from it. And it was $25. I mean, it was probably less than right. But like mm-hmm. for today's rate for $25 for a whole chicken for four dishes to feed your whole family, you can't get that price going, going out to eat for one meal. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And that's one of the things I'm so passionate about is talking about eating well and spending less money. Because I think, you know, food prices are outrageous these days. And I think there's a huge misconception that eating healthier or eating more real food, whatever your definition of healthy is, is so much more expensive. And it can be if you're eating a lot of highly processed foods or you don't know those type of tricks, like using the bigger piece of meat, using the bone in meat, not only is it going to be way more flavorful because there's all those minerals in the bone, it's also healthier because there are all those minerals in the bone. It's also way less expensive to be able to take that chicken, take it apart and use it in multiple meals. So I love that. (laughs) So what are some of your, I guess, Asian pantry and fridge staples? What are some of those things you can't live without? Like you mentioned having the cilantro for the broth and green onions. What are some of your other essentials? Ingredients wise, I think those, and then we have a pho spice mix that we have, we just, we prepackage them for ourselves. And then because we're also a homeschooling family, I said, well, you know, girls, why don't you try to sell this? I'll show you how to make a website. And so they're organic spices that we, it's hard to find organic and non-ETO, so non-sprayed with ethylene oxide, non-irradiated spices, because we raise our own animals, right? So we, our beef cattle takes two years, grass-fed, grass-finished. So we have a certain set of bones and we have a certain set of quality that we want to be able to drink all of the nourishing broth from it. The spices that you buy in the grocery store that's pre-made um, comes from international overseas and it could be sprayed with lead and arsenic and sprayed with um, preservatives and irradiated. Like that's all the things that we don't want in the broth when I'm <laughs> raising my own cows. So we we have our own and that makes it easy. I mean, as a busy working mom with all so many things in the air, the number one thing, another thing is a stock pot. So I'm, I have broth going on the stove most days out of the week. And if it's either beef bones or chicken, I will put it into what we use spring water. And I do talk about that. So that's very important for us too. spring water, water is life. And then I will just simply drop in the spice mix. So we do sell those. Now the girls sell them and actually polyface is, uh, Joel Salatin's farm. He's now selling our book and as well as the spice mix. So right before our call. So cool packaging up another order for them because they're reordering. So that's just really cool because for the busy mom, it's just perfect for me and all of this cookbook and the, the products that we've come out from it and, and, you know, the classes and the things that I'm teaching really is because out of essential needs from myself, like this cookbook didn't exist. And that's something that I wanted. And so I have to go do it, which is fine. And I think it's beautiful. And I, I think that I did a really good job with the whole family. I mean, it definitely was a family project, but yeah, so we've got, um, stock pot, our spice mix, 
Um, I, there's a cast iron wok that I use. Um, salt is really important and real unrefined salt and a big ladle, a big soup ladle is really, really mm -hmm. important. It just bugs me when, you know, we're doing bowls of pho, for example, or any of ours healing broths and we're using a small ladle. I just, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to have that large ladle, especially when, when you're cooking the rare beef over the oxtail pho, I also have rare beef. Mm -hmm. It's a part of our culture is, or part of the pho dish is using that hot boiling broth, ladling it over the noodles and over the meat so that it cooks the meat and tenderizes it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love all those things. And I typically make my broth in the slow cooker just because it's easier. But there are so many of your recipes in the book that I want to try. Just just the broth recipes look so delicious. And I think people underestimate the power of a really good broth. Like your soup is nothing without, I mean, aromatics are important, but your soup is nothing without a good broth. And I think that's one of the things in so many different Asian cuisines. There's is it's a really is a really really good broth and so yeah I love that you have that and I love that you have the spice blend in order to to yeah. enhance that too whatever makes it makes life easier <laughs> because we're all about shortcuts <laughs> all about shortcuts and you know one of the things is it doesn't take that much time mm -hmm. I mean yes I say you simmer your broth you know it for the chicken broth can be done in ease as easy as you know an hour and a half but the bone broth for the beef bone broth is typically you know 12 to 24 hours but there's really like 15 to 20 minutes of hands-on time to prep for it i make it and I, I make sure that i make it so simple because i'm running from meeting to meeting and um you know even before in my in my tech life and so but i the priority is the family and feeding them well so mm -hmm. how do i still do that and they will always have broth on the stove so they can you know if i'm busy in a meeting they can serve themselves you know for lunch and unfortunately i haven't found like the perfect rhythm to all sit together for lunch but dinner we always share dinner together breakfast is together as well as lunch is a little crazy but you know we're there beginning and the end of the day I mean, and you're serving them really delicious, nutrient-dense food. So I think that's that's what's important. You sit together yeah. as a family as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm I'm all about food being one of the best ways to bring our families together. Just sitting around a really delicious meal is so special. It's a great way to connect with our family. And also, it's a great way, like, you know, going back to you were talking about introducing new flavors with awful and things like that, maybe introducing a new broth with ingredients that your kids have not tried and flavor profiles they've never tried. It's a great, it's a great, um, simple way. I find I'm thinking, what is the word I'm looking for? It's not intimidating because yeah. there are so many, I'm sure your families have had soup before. And yeah. so broth is a great way to introduce more nutrients and then also maybe more flavor profiles in a way that isn't intimidating. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of adding more biodiversity into your gut mm -hmm. too. Right. So like we have a different way of cooking different aromatics or different spices. And and it's not just broth. We our Asian culture. They're healing broths, too. These are the broths that, you know, came with stories. And I did talk about them, about how after postpartum mom would mom would make me this broth or this would help with lactation, you know, and and all sorts of things now you may not be in a postpartum age or stage in your life, but it's still very nourishing and healing for elderly, or if you're not feeling well, or for your children to grow up this way. Um, and they're not 
hard to make. It's just kicking up a different, you know, adding, adding different flavors, preparing them differently. But all of that at the end of the day adds more biodiversity into your microbiome and then makes you less susceptible to diseases, just like adding more biodiversity into the garden as well than into the soil adds more immunity to, to our food. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Can we talk more about some of the recipes specifically in your book? You mentioned so many of them, but I am, I'm so excited to make so many of them. It was honestly probably a couple weeks before, before the chicken feet conversation, but it was a couple weeks before, um, you know, I, I started, I started chatting, um, with you about your, your cookbook and coming on the podcast. My husband had mentioned, like, I'm really craving Asian food. I want you to make more Asian food. And I was in a phase of recipe testing for my cooking community where I was doing a lot of like hearty winter recipes, but very much along my like comfortable French classical cuisine kind of place. And he loves that. He loves, you know, he loves a good French chicken stew, but he was like, I really want some Asian cuisine. And I'm like, okay, so I know, I know what I know. And I make some really delicious dishes. I have some that I've shared within my community. And I, you know, I call them Asian inspired because they're only, they're only so traditional, but I know that he wants more and I didn't have a resource. And he has one really cool Japanese Canadian cookbook that he wants to start cooking out of that his mom gave us. That's from like their Japanese community center in Toronto, which is great. So we have some recipes, but that's literally our only Asian cookbook. And so when you reached out and I'm looking through these recipes, I'm like, oh my gosh, my husband is going to go crazy. (laughs) He's going to be so excited. So, I mean, even just the ferments alone, like you were mentioning making your own sauerkraut, we've made sauerkraut on and off for years. My kids love sauerkraut. It was some of their first foods. Like we would give them little bits of like the sauerkraut juice and both of them go crazy. We do sauerkraut, we do pickled onions. Um, but I've never made my own kimchi. And you have a couple really awesome recipes for kimchi in your cookbook. And I want to I want to try that. I'm like, we have our Christmas break coming up. Maybe I can try making some kimchi. You have a Napa cabbage kimchi and a daikon kimchi, which I love daikon. And I had never had daikon. Or I think I'd probably tried it on like a plate of sushi. It's the, for those, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what daikon is, it's a type of radish. <laughs> um, and you can buy it at the grocery store. You can buy it at Whole Foods. And it's like this, almost like this big white log looking thing. Yep. Um, but it's super tasty and it's much more, I find it much more mild than like your French radish, um, but it's super crunchy and tasty and delicious. And I would have never thought to turn into a kimchi. Oh, that's my favorite kimchi recipe is the daikon radish one. And we use daikon in a lot of our Asian recipes. I even use it. My mom, uh, she started putting it into our pho to sweeten it up. So it's actually a very versatile. Oh, that's so cool. Good for you. Yeah. And, and for, I mean, on the gardening side, it's really good because it digs up a lot of the soil. And so, Mm. so if you have hard clay soil, you just grow the daikon and the daikon basically acts as like a drill as it grows. And then as you pull it out, and this is what we did. And we had a small quarter acre garden in the, in the Bay area. But once I pulled that out when it was ready, I mean, the soil was all crumbly. And so now that we're on a new farm, I'm like, let's just keep the daikon radish going because it helps with the garden. But also I love daikon radish. We use it in our soups and that's just as a, like a natural sweetener almost. Um, 
And then, and then, yeah. And when you ferment it, it's just a nice, it stays crunchy. Mm. So it adds the texture, a different flavor profile. So if you're eating something savory, I always add, we always add something fermented to Mm -hmm. our meals. So whether that's kimchi or sauerkraut or, you know, daikon kimchi, um, or we have pickled veggies, pickled onions. Another thing that's a, that's a staple with the pho is, you know, on that cover photo, when I took that photo, it was, it made me cry because it was everything me, the way that I love to eat my bowl of pho. I love the wider uh, rice flour noodles. I love the oxtail. I love the rare beef, but I also love the pickled onions and not everywhere you go will serve pickled onions, but we do at home. And now I've gotten my oldest one. She's like addicted to it. Now she'll just have pho with like a whole pickled onion. (laughs) And, um, and it's, and it's just great. It's good for you, but yeah, that's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, we just love the fermented food. So we always try to incorporate some sort of fermented food with every one of our meals. Mm, I love that. We need to incorporate them with our meals more because we always have them in our fridge and my kids will just take like a couple forkfuls of kraut, but sometimes they forget to put them with our meals. Like we will, we'll use pickled onions pretty often, but there's a whole wide world of ferments. And I forgot how much my 10 year old loved kimchi. And we were at, we did buy the Trader Joe's kimchi because that was what we were at the store. And she was like, can we get some kimchi? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I'm not going to, again, just like, just like with the oysters, I'm not going to say no. And, and my younger daughter loves pickled onion and it's such a great way to, you know, get in some extra nutrients, some gut health, and it's tasty and budget friendly. I think, again, sometimes we think that eating healthy is so expensive or being healthy is so expensive, but you can make broth really inexpensively at home. You can make ferments really easily and inexpensively at home. There's so yeah. much we can do from home. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it's elevated too. You could take a certain set, you know, you can take a whole chicken and roast it, which you can still do. Um, but you can also elevate it by making bone broth and adding some healing spices to it. Same thing with cabbage. Yes. You know, we'll either stir fry or we'll steam some cabbage, you know, or you can take a little bit of extra time on that same head of cabbage and turn it into sauerkraut or some sort of kimchi and it saves, you know, you can extend the life of it. It, you know, the cabbage lasts a while (laughs) just on the counter, but it's so much better over time as the fermentation process continues to ferment, even, you know, even slowly in the refrigerator, but it's still happening, which is better for your gut health. And it's the same head of cabbage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people get into just from the women that I've talked to over the years, get into, the rut of buying an ingredient and using half of it and the rest of it goes bad in their fridge. So I love any way where we can use, just like with me, you can use as much of the animal as possible. You can use as much of that head of cabbage as possible. I have half a head of red cabbage and half a head of green cabbage in my fridge right now. And I'm like, okay, I need to go and make a batch of kraut (laughs) so I don't (laughs) let it go bad. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There are so many more good recipes in your cookbook. I just want to give the listeners a little preview of some of the ones that I want to try. You have a spicy beef noodle soup, which my husband is very, very excited for. So that'll be one of the first that we make because he loves everything in that one. Your oxtail pho. I have not 
admittedly made oxtail at home. I've made oxtail before. We made it in we made it in school years ago. I was over 10 years ago. I went to culinary school and we made it in the restaurant I worked for, but I haven't made it at home. And we love pho and I've only made it at home once. So we want to make that for sure with your delicious broth. Um, your Thai basil lemongrass lamb chops. I love lamb and I haven't made lamb in a really long time either. And I'm like, what a cool way. I've only ever eaten lamb either in a French style or in kind of a Middle Eastern style because that's what I grew up with. And so I'm so excited to make that. You have some really delicious recipes that have those like amped up nutrients, like your turmeric spiced salmon and kimchi or your, sorry, your sushi. It's a supercharged sushi with turmeric spiced salmon and kimchi. And I, I know that my kids are going to love that because they're all ingredients they love. But I'm like, can we we're going to combine turmeric and salmon and all of these super nutrient dense ingredients. But oh, my gosh, the flavors just sound outrageous. So, I mean, I don't really have anything else to say other than they all look incredible. <laughs> and I'm excited to make them in a way that does it really, truly I really want to get this across for my listeners, doesn't feel intimidating. I think you have so much knowledge that you and your mom have put into this book, but it also feels very doable, which I love because like I said, I've my listeners know I have the culinary experience and I'm like, you want me to make a buff bourguignon? No problem. But you want me to make a traditional pho and I start sweating because I'm like, I'm going to do it wrong. I want to really do this justice. And now I'm like, okay, well, I can just follow Sophia's recipe. So I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and I'm yeah, sure it's going to well, come out amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. I actually am putting up a pho masterclass this week. So people oh my can gosh. start watching me. I mean, I have already pre-recorded it. So it's just a matter of me putting it up. But yeah, um, the time with the launch of the book, which is happening this week, which is the first week yes. of December now that we're recording it. But, you know, where I walk you through, this is how I make my pho. Because I get that a lot of like, oh, I can't make that beef bourguignon. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> but I can make a mean bowl of pho using yeah. oxtail. And, you know, we all have our different strengths. And especially with mm -hmm. our cultures and our backgrounds and culinary experiences that, you know, this is, this is just great. How do we make real food? But simple. And that was my number one thing is how do we make it accessible? So all of the ingredients you can buy at your local health food store, whether, you know, and there's always like an Asian inspired section or an Asian section in a health food store, and you can use, you can get those ingredients, even a small town where we're at, I can still get it. We're in the mountains now. We're not in the mm -hmm. Bay area at all, but we can still have access to it, or you can order them online and have them shipped to you. But it's really not that many ingredients that you'll need. You know, you, you can get really intimidated going to an Asian grocery store or reading mm -hmm. all these complex recipes, but that's not at what I'm after at all. How do mm -hmm. we make it simple? How do we make it the most clean, most nourishing and most delicious? Yes. I love that. That's, that's, that's what I love about that's what I love about food really is that <laughs> you don't need that many ingredients. You just need the right ingredients in the right way to make things really delicious and really nourishing. So, so I didn't even ask you a question there. I just started telling you some of the recipes I want to try to your cookbook. What are your favorite recipes? I know you mentioned the Oxtelfa. What are some of your other favorite recipes out of the cookbook? What do you want people to try right away? I would say the pho. Try the pho, whether it's beef or my my favorite is the oxtail pho. It is on the cover of the book for a reason. <laughs> that is just the way I love to eat it. And then my dad would always crack open a raw egg for, and I didn't, I just thought that was like, I mean, I guess the Japanese culture does that for like ramen noodles where they yes, soften yeah. or poach it, right? But 
but my dad would just throw in a raw egg with that's why it's so important to have a big ladle to make sure mm-hmm. you have hot broth. <laughs> um, but, you know, aside from that, I would say, you know, if you can do chicken pho, that's easy. Um, I love the hot pot. Um, that was mm. also a second thing. I mean, I love it for friends and family. I love it for our family when it's hot or when it's, when it's cold and you want a hot broth. So like right now we're in December, you know, whatever Asian greens I have in the garden. So cabbage, Napa cabbage, things like that. I can bring into the home bok choy, you know, I can, Oh man, it's so good. The Tom Yum paste, um, the Tom Yum Mm -hmm. soup that I make and then a miso soup. So I I have one of these pots that's like split in the middle. So the kids will enjoy their miso soup. And and my husband and I will enjoy the Tom Yum hot spicy soup, which Mm -hmm. is perfect for this kind of weather. And then, you know, we'll just harvest our veggies in the garden, wash them, put them on the plate, you know, put them on the table, whatever cuts of meat that we have, Um, we'll just dip them into the soup. And that's like, it's so easy. Again, it's coaching and so easy because we're just cooking it together. It didn't take me any extra time. Um, And then in the spring and summer, I love spring rolls. So same kind of concept, whatever we can harvest. It's usually like cucumbers and carrots and um, romaine lettuce that I have growing. And, you know, whatever, either we can do noodles. Sometimes I don't, but cilantro is key as well. And then, you know, lamb bulgogi is the recipe that I have in the book. Mm. That's really, really good. There's that one. Um, yeah, there's so many. Actually, I would, when I was writing the book and I was telling the stories, the editor came back and she said, Sophia, all of your recipes say, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. Can you <laughs> like, use another descriptive word? And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize it, but these are all my favorite recipes. Yeah that cookbook are all of our favorite recipes, all of my favorite recipes and all of the ones that my mom and I have enjoyed, my husband and I, and the kids and I have enjoyed, like we even have a tapioca ball, like boba drink in the mm. dessert section. We don't drink No, that. I think I missed that one, but my 10 year old is currently obsessed with boba. So we will have to make that. <laughs> She's yes. making it herself. Yeah. Hydrating the, the tapioca balls. Yeah. Right. So we make our own from scratch. You know, we don't have any extra preservatives in there, no caramel color or things like that. Mm -hmm. It's just clean. And we make our own with honey and we soak it in raw honey. And it's just a natural sweetener as well. So good. (laughs) No, so it's a it's a that's not traditional, but is it's our family traditions. And instead of drinking all of that outside, we're 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 drinking it at home and making it at home. And we're using our own raw dairy. So it's all raw milk in there. Yes. Oh, so good. Well, I love that you're, you have those classic traditional recipes, but you've also, you've brought in your family's influence, both your greater family, both your parents' influence and your husband's family's influence. And then the things that your family loves too, and bringing it all together. So what a beautiful way to pass this on to your girls, but then also pass on these recipes to the world and have people like me so incredibly excited to try the recipes and like I've said a million times not feel so intimidated by maybe cooking Asian cuisine that they might not have cooked before so I'm so excited about it so thrilled to hear that from you because I mean this was just something that was supposed to be a simple family project and to see it now being sold all over the country and then soon out to the world. It makes me a little nervous because it is all of our family stories in there. Like, Oh, how are people going to perceive it? You know, we've got like a picture of a lamb and then (laughs) 
lambogogi recipe next to it, right? Um, but it's all about honoring the the life and death because even vegetables have life. And the second that we harvest them is death, right? And so same thing. And it's just how do we honor these, these the, the life and death of what happens on the farm, in our food, in the grocery stores, and, and everything else in between that I, you know, I just, I just have loved going through this experience. Um, we've transformed our lives completely in the last, you know, decade. Um, and it has, it's a beautiful story now, but throughout that transformation hasn't always been all that beautiful. And so to hear you say something like that and to hear many others as the book starts getting shipped out, um, from different walks of life all over the country so far has been really encouraging. I'm going to learn to accept and receive, <laughs> but I'm so glad and thrilled to be able to share our recipes and our traditions and our stories to, to you and the world and just excited to see what you're going to make from it and hear how excited your family and your husband's going to be <laughs> Yes, buying all the recipes. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I am currently, as we are recording on a little social media break, I just took the end of the year off, just, you know, a little little mental health break. But when I come back, I will be coming back in January. I will definitely be sharing, you know, with my community what I'm, what I'm cooking. And, you know, I'll share it with my cooking community too, because they love a diverse, they love a diverse I guess, array of recipes. But like I said, I'm only so limited in what I can do. And I love learning about new cuisines and learning about traditional ingredients. And, but I love bringing in other people too, who have way more expertise than I do. So I'm so glad that we have this conversation with the podcast community and that, you know, they're going to be able to have your book when this airs, your cookbook will be out your um your fall resource will be out and so they'll be able to go and just buy a copy and and share the recipes with their family so can you tell us can you tell everyone i guess um where they can find you where they can find your recipes if you have any i think you have some of your recipes online and your new book yes so you, you can find me on our website sprinklewithsoil.com um, it's kind of a play on words for when you finish a dish, you sprinkle with salt, but we also mm -hmm. talk about our food and farming experience and our stories. So it's sprinklewithsoil.com where on Instagram is sprinkle with soil as well. Um, same thing as Facebook. I have a Substack where I do write um, some newsletters. Um, so that's sprinklewithsoil.substack.com. And then we have a podcast. My husband and I have a podcast called call to farms because we're also a military family mm -hmm. and uh, it's a nod to a call to arms instead mm -hmm. of rifle picking up a shovel and join the <laughs> <laughs> join the fight to protect small farms and so that's yeah um really to find the book you can go on amazon you can go to your local bookstore you can buy online on sprinkle with soil so that'll all be available awesome well we will put links in the show notes too so they can find you and they can find your book and they can get your delicious recipes Oh my goodness. This has been such a good conversation. I, like I, I have said many times, I'm very excited to try your recipes and I appreciate everything you're doing in really bringing the world of traditional cooking with the world of traditional classic Asian cuisine. I think it's really unique and it's definitely needed. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me on your show. I'm so excited to be able to share this with you, share this with the audience and excited to hear what everybody makes from the cookbook. Thank you for listening to my podcast.
Friend, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Healthy Mama Kitchen Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you love to listen to podcasts so you never miss a cooking tip. If you've been loving this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It truly makes a difference in how many other busy cooks find this show and lets me know what you're loving and want to hear more of. For show notes and links to all the recipes and tools I mentioned, head to HealthyMamaChris.com slash podcast. For daily eats, cooking tips, and family-friendly shortcut dinner ideas, be sure to follow along over on Instagram at HealthyMamaChris. Remember, cooking for your family may not always feel easy, but it can be simple.